Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Edward Smith. Edward is a financial advisor and spent several years as probation officer in Florida. He has a strong commitment to community service, which goes back to his upbringing. Welcome, Edward. Hi, Karen. How are you? Great. You had mentioned your father as a person that inspired you, that he showed you the importance of community service, and he also taught you how to interact with people and provide help to those in need. Yep, that's correct. I actually grew up in Michigan, in the metro Detroit area. We grew up in church. My dad was a deacon. Uh, we did a lot of community service in the area. Um, there was a halfway house and also a detention center that was real close to the church. So we would do a lot of outreach, bringing those people into the church, um, helping them get back on their feet. And then just in general, we have a pretty large family up here. So my dad, every weekend, we would pretty much ride around, helping do handyman work you know, fix this, fix that, go to our old neighborhood, cut their grass for, for our old neighbors, things like that. And when you said, you know, in church and there's a detention center and all these different people, I'm sure that means there were different problems and it's not always that easy to solve problems. So did you learn how to handle that? And was that what led you to become a probation officer? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was able to see how conflict resolution was handled between men. You don't necessarily need to meet everything head on with the hammer, but you do need to stand firm. And a lot of those guys that come out of the detention center, sometimes they'll get a little rowdy or they'll, you know, they get loud. You had a lot of mental illness going on. Instead of making a big scene, come with me. They'll take them. You know, our bathrooms had like a little lounge in them. They'll walk them over to the lounge, have a conversation with them, talk to them like, hey, you know, this can go one of two ways. You know, you can either stay, get the word, have dinner, have breakfast or whatever, or you can leave and just stand tough on that. And sometimes they stay, most of the time they stay actually, but sometimes they have to go. And because there was such a strong male presence in, in the church, yeah, there was no incidents. It helped me as far as when I got to probation and not be afraid of anything when presented with conflict. Conflict resolution was pretty easy. It's like, hey, we can do one of two things. <laughs> if you don't want to be on probation, I can easily write a letter and have you go right back to court and have this handled. Sounds like listening was an important skill. And, you know, I'm also going to ask you to talk a little bit about what is probation really? Because people might think, all right, so somebody committed a crime and then they go to jail or prison. So where does probation fit in? So with probation, unlike as being a police officer, most of their interactions are with the community. 
every now and again, they do run into criminals. But with my job, every person that I've met is, is a criminal or, you know, has been convicted by the court. Essentially, if somebody that's been arrested, they've gone to court already. They've been adjudicated either guilty or adjudication withheld, meaning that they're withholding their, their sentence until they finish their probation sentence. And they're sent over to us to complete the tasks that the court put in front of them. The court would give them certain amount of stipulations that they had to complete their probation. And it was my job to ensure that they did that and was reintegrated into society and stayed out of trouble. So it's like somebody did something that society deems as not okay, so not as a consequence. And you make sure that they are, would you say, like relearning or learning different skills to behave in a different way. And could you give maybe some examples? Like, what did you have to do? Did you work in an office or did you visit people in their homes? Actually, it was like a hybrid of that. Essentially, I worked in the office and we had to do home visits periodically. Every person, probation was a little different. It was no cookie cutter version of it. Some people, you know, had a higher level of supervision where you had to see them a lot more in the field. You had to visit them. You had to do curfew checks, depending on what they did. And then some people, they were pretty much very relaxed on theirs. You see them maybe once every three months, had very few stipulations, pretty much they were on for a short period. Most definitely, if I knew your name, you know, if your name always comes up, you have a pretty big issue because that means I'm always reviewing your file. But if I don't really have to review your file that much, I know your name and I come across it. But every time I look at your file, say complete, complete, complete. Okay. That was easy. There's some people that don't complete their court order supervision. And that's when we have to do violations, have to end up arresting people and going back and forth with that. But yeah, I work in the office most of the time. Well, let me not say that. It was probably about 50-50. And what would you say were the challenges for the people you worked with? Because you mentioned for some, they followed the rules that were set for them, but others had more trouble. What do you think made it more difficult for some? I mean, there was a wide range of individuals that I dealt with from different locations around Palm Beach County. So it was a different mindset, different environment from each one. But um, what I can say is, you had some people that were on probation because they didn't have the money to fight a case and it was just cheaper to take the probation plea. And then you had some people that were genuine criminals <laughs> and you really had to keep an eye on them. Before they, they're placed on probation with you, um, before you even read their orders, you get a pretty much a rap sheet from NCIC, FCIC. You have to review every crime that they've done in the past. Sometimes they'll be on for something, something as simple as possession, possession of cocaine or something like that, or possession of marijuana. But then when you look at their record, they have all types of aggravated assaults, deadly weapon, murder, rape. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This person has to be elevated a little bit. They just got caught for this. But in their past, not so recent past, they've had all of these other charges. So I have to keep a good eye on them because if they do something well under my supervision, that comes back on me. And then they're going to take a look at it and say like, oh, he wasn't looking at that person close enough. So I have to make sure to cover myself and supervise and accordingly. What I'm hearing, and correct me if this is wrong, some people can be on probation, but maybe before that, at some point, they were in jail or prison? Because it was probation and parole, I had a lot of people that were fresh out of prison. 
and we had to supervise them and reintegrate them into society. So a part of their sentence was probably, you know, five or 10 years in prison uh, to be followed up with 15 years of probation. So you have to take a full look of everything that they've done, supervise them accordingly. You have to do periodic drug tests. Uh, you have to do DNA samples. You have to make sure they complete their community service, um, make sure that they're up to date on their payments, make sure that they're completing their tasks. And then you also have to do some coaching to get them reintegrated into society or they're gonna fall back into the same trappings. So you have to take a look and see like, okay, what are you doing now to be different from before? And you have to sort of take that coaching approach too. You know, you have to assist them because a lot of times they don't have access to that information or they don't know where to find it. And they're nervous. A lot of them are really nervous. They don't want to go back to jail. They don't want to go back to prison. Most of them wanted to do the right thing. And, you know, when they get in front of you, they're going to tell you whatever you want to hear. You know, and it's, it's up to you to sort of discern that and just like, okay, so what is really going on? Sometimes what they say doesn't match, you know, what they're actually doing. Now, when you say, so they're coming out of jail or prison, let's say prison after 10 years or even more, and now they are on parole and there are certain rules set for them to follow certain requirements. But what is their mental and emotional state at this point? Because prison is a very different environment that society outside. Yeah, you get a myriad of things with that. Some of them went to jail. I mean, I'm not blaming mental illness, but they did have some mental illness that's unregulated. I've had people that when they're on their medication, they're the nicest people. When they're off the medication, they'll put a knife to their mom's neck. And you have to make sure to stay in contact. They had the Jerome Golden Center here, which was a mental health facility. I had a lot of contacts in there that I knew personally. And they would assist me in going to see some of these people in the field. I was trained to deal with some mental illness, but only to a certain degree. I'm able to look at somebody, you know, if I know that they have a mental illness or they're going through an episode, to be able to detect, you know, when they're off kilter a little bit. That's why I used to require that people would come into the office first. That way I can have a base level, like you just came from court. So I know you weren't acting crazy in court come see me. We're going to have that initial conversation so we can, I can gauge who you are at the base level. When I do see that you're erratic or something is wrong, I can tell like, you don't look the same today. What's going on? I actually had somebody, he was diagnosed schizophrenic. He had um, pulled a knife on his mother and tried to stab her. She ended up locking herself in a room, trying to get away from him. And that's what he was on probation for. They committed him to to the Jerome Golden Center for like, uh, I want to say like 90 days. They don't keep people that long and make sure that he was on his medication and everything. When he came to me the first time, you would never guess like this kid, I mean, he was maybe 23. We got to do something to help you out because you still got a, your whole life ahead of you. We got to make sure that you get back on track. Yes, you do have this in your past and it is going to be a hurdle for you to get over. Very big hurdle. Pull a knife on your mom is a very big hurdle and a red flag to anybody that's hiring you. We have to work out a strategy to make you hireable or talk about you starting your own business. And we had a lot of good conversations. And then one month he came in, you know, he was sweating, he was erratic, he was speaking really fast. And I'm totally calm. I'm sitting at my desk just like this. How's everything going? 
and he's just talking real fast, sweating, moving around a lot. How's your mom doing? How's everybody doing at the house? Oh, everybody's fine. I'm like, when was the last time you took your medication? Oh, it ran out this, you know, a few weeks ago, this, that, and the other. I'm like, you're looking a little erratic right now. I'm going to give a call to Jerome Golden. I want you to walk over there. I'm going to alert them that you're going over there to get your medication because we need to get that settled as fast as possible. All right. I'm going to call and check up on you in about a half hour. So make your way over. I sent them over, gave them a call, made sure that he had showed up and got in there. If I had just been like, no, whatever, he's acting crazy today. He could have gone home and did anything. I had to make sure that that got addressed right then and there. So you have to be really on top of things, very alert and a good observer. And also, I think, you know, it sounds like you have to know how to speak to somebody in this situation because, well, if he gets angry, could you ever be in danger? That too. That was another reason why I wanted to meet people in my office. You know, we have to establish a dynamic off top because I have to read their orders. We have to establish those guidelines, you know, boundaries. And what will be expected, what won't be tolerated. So when I show up to your house on your terms, you know, you won't try anything. And I've had people confront me at their house, uh, which was very unsettling. You don't know what they have. Um, They know I'm law enforcement. And if you're talking about confronting me at your house because you have the upper hand, this isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go. Like if you assault me, that's like the worst thing you could possibly do. Like you're going to assault uh employee with the Department of Corrections. Law enforcement is going to come at you heavy. And then you're going to go back into the Department of Corrections where they're going to say like, oh, you assaulted one of us? Okay. You know, when they act erratic like that, you know, I'm like, okay. I understand that you're probably up under a lot of stress. I want to see them outside first before I go into their house and see how they're reacting. And I can see their whole silhouette, their entire body to make sure that they don't have anything in their hands. And then if they're acting a little erratic or aggressive, well, I just want to check and see if that you were at the house while walking backwards. And then if they continue to get aggressive, I'm like, I understand you're under stress right now. How about we meet in the office? We can discuss this a little bit further, you know, discuss your options. By that time, I'm at my car door and I'm already about to pull off. So I don't want them to get themselves in trouble. If they don't want to be on probation, we can discuss other options. I can send them back to court and have them do the jail time and just be done with it. But if they assault me, it's, you're talking 10, 15, 20 years. So instead of getting them into more trouble, let's discuss your options. If you don't want to be on this, fine. That's an option. You don't have to be on this. That option also comes with consequences. If you don't do this, I'm going to have to violate you. And when I worked on the coast, towards the coast of Palm Beach, closer to the ocean, those judges... For every violation, it was like a minimum of 90 days that you're going to sit in jail. Whereas closer to inland, Palm Beach County, when I worked in Belgrade, sometimes they'll be in jail maybe a day, a week. So, you know, different situations, different aggressions when they know what the jail sentence is going to be. If they know if they violate on the coast, they're going to get 90 days. You get a lot of runners, a lot more aggression. In Belgrade, you can tell them like, hey, you violated. You need to go ahead and get their handle, get your affairs in order go over to the courthouse and turn yourself in because I'm going to write this violation. And then I'm like, okay, I'll get my affairs in order and they'll come to the office and sweatpants and flip-flops because they already know they're about to go to jail. You do meet 
hostile environments as a probation officer and what you describe about people's choices. So yes, they have choices, but I guess not being on probation is not such a great choice because that means jail time. So the stress on the people is high, right? And I'm wondering, well, well some of them like to be in jail. Some of them didn't care. Really? I, it felt like um, because a lot of them were impoverished, jail was cleaner, nicer. They got a chance to eat. They meet a lot of family members. So, you know, certain areas, jail wasn't that bad for them, especially out in Belgley, because that jail was sort of brand new. Whereas on the coast, you know, you have a lot more opportunity in the community. So going to jail is not where you want to be, not to mention the jail over there looks like a dungeon. And they hated it. And every time they would go, they would get sick. You know, that's an interesting point, because most people I know would think, what jail? How could I ever want to be there? But what you're describing is that if people live in an area of poverty, there isn't really a great way to survive legally. There's a lot of insecurity, like the basic needs are not met. So they really would choose jail. That's somewhat sad. It is. It's very sad. Three hots in the cot, they would call it. And people will go there to get medical attention. They have um, needs like dental needs or they need something met. They'll go to jail. I've had people that walked into Walmart with bins, walk over to the garden center, just start throwing stuff in there, and then just walk out and you're like, oh, you're under arrest. Okay, cool. But they know their own camera. They'll do something real stupid just to get thrown in jail. It's like, okay, cool. Or they're trying to escape something that's going on on the outside or there's a lot of drama. They just need to think or gather themselves. They'll they'll go to jail. And I talked to them. I used to do a lot of jailhouse interviews, too. I go meet somebody in the medical ward. They're walking around flip-flops eating honey buns and I'm watching TV. I'm like, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. What's going on? How are you deterring people from going to jail if they come in there just to get away from their nagging girlfriend or or nagging relatives and, and be able to sit down, eat meals, have some structure to their lives? Because that's a lot of reason, too. Their lives are so unstructured and it's just wild. They don't know what's going to happen from day to day, time to time. And then you go to jail and everything's regimented. And at this time, you will eat dinner. At this time, you will eat lunch. At this time, you will go to sleep. And it's like, okay, I have a bed. I have food to eat. You know, I, if I'm sick, I can go to medical. So a lot of them, they didn't have an issue with it. I mean, that's the sad thing. If you have people that's been in jail or prison for a long time and they come out, it's hard for them to cope. You have to do so much more training because they're, they're sort of institutionalized. They don't know how to handle stuff on their own. They don't know how to pay bills. They don't know how to shop, you know, yeah. take care of themselves for the most part. So they need to have family members help them reintegrate into society. So I ended up doing a lot of interviews and, and talking to parents, parents and family members. I got a chance to know a lot of their family members, help them out. It's a sad situation. That's why the recidivism rate is so high, because, you know, it takes so much energy and time and effort on everyone to try to turn around one person. Yeah. And that makes me also think we know these things. You know these things. The judges know these things. The criminal justice system knows these things. But, well, what do we do? Because 
so must be frustrated for everybody involved to repeatedly convict people when they know the reason they're going to jail is to look for structure and have their basic needs met. When you started this job, what did you expect? And I mean, what were the surprises? I'm sure these things were not what you expected. I know when I started, I had a young son and I had a daughter on the way. Not seeing how dangerous Palm Beach County could be. I'm like, so what can I do to make this a safer place for my children? So I got into law enforcement to try to help out. I think I made, you know, a pretty good dent in things. Uh, my approach to trying to assist people in finding alternatives. I got used to doing the five whys. You keep asking why something happens. Like, okay, so you did this. Why? Why are you here? Okay, you couldn't afford this. Why couldn't you afford this? You know, you don't have the money. Okay, why don't you have the money? I don't have the education. Okay, why don't you have the education? I don't have the opportunity. You know, I do this exercise with the offenders, asking the why. We have some real conversations. We'll have a reporting day. Well, actually, it's a reporting week where you have people come in. But sometimes that doesn't allow you enough time because you have, you know, 100 people on a caseload that you're trying to see all in one week. So you know, 15, 20 minutes per person, sometimes that's not enough time. So I'm like, okay, let's schedule another time, you know, next week. I want to give you an hour. We're going to have a good conversation and get down to the bottom of this to see, you know, what your options are. And that's when we start asking all those whys. And then like, okay, so if education is the reason why you can't get a better job and do this, that, and the other, okay, so let's address that. And then we'll sit down and we'll discuss, even sometimes we'll do exercise. You know, I'd have printouts and scholarship papers and, and exercises for them to figure out what they're good at. And we'll just figure that out. I've helped people start businesses. You know, it might be small businesses, but it's something because a lot of them couldn't find work. They couldn't find work. Nobody will hire me, this, that, and the other. I'm like, okay. Used to play football. I talked to somebody that's in my network. and be like, okay, this guy used to play football. You know, let's see what's going on. They'll end up doing part-time coaching and at least an assistant coaching position. You know, what else are you looking for? I know I need money. I'm not really in the school anymore. I don't want to do that. Okay, so let's see what your options are. And we start discussing small business opportunities. You did a mobile car washing thing. You actually became pretty decent at it. Okay. And when he would see me driving around, like, hey, Mr. Smith, hey, Officer Smith, what's going on? I wash your car. Like, no, I can't do that. I'm glad to see you out here doing something positive. Once they have something like that, like a purpose, they don't commit crimes like that. A lot of those people didn't commit crimes. Now, there's a wide spectrum of people. Let's just say that. I've had a lot of people that did scams and owed back, you know, millions of dollars in restitution. At that point, you're collecting money, making sure that they pay, go out to their house. I've had people give me fake names. I called to verify where they're working at. They didn't give a number to their friend. And I called a friend. And he's like, yeah, he works here. And then I'm like, okay. And then a week passed by. I call again. And then the number's disconnected. I'm like, that's I. So I look up the company. I call the company. Oh, you guys have worked here for like like two years. I'm like, oh, is that right? Now I got to do research, find out where he lives at, go find him at this house. You know, and he's left. I'm like, okay, we got to put a warrant out for his arrest. I don't know where this guy's at. He's known for scamming. When we finally catch him, he, he was all for scamming. He was on for scamming, I want to say it was elderly people. 
sometimes you have to do some investigation and looking into stuff, take that extra step. You have to team up law enforcement and all types of investigative agencies to help you with that stuff. So it can become a difficult job because you have, a, like I said, a spectrum of people, real hardened criminals that's living in your area that you have to make sure to come on top of because those are the type of people's like, I have to make sure this person doesn't do anything crazy. I would hate to turn on the TV and see that he's killed somebody or he's been scamming people. And while you're in the midst of having communication with the person, you might overlook a few things so they can um, alleviate us from running into that situation. They'll switch um, offenders from officer to officer every so often. So you can get a fresh set of eyes looking at it. The people won't get too familiar with you because I would get a lot of um, female offenders that would try to flirt and do whatever, show up to the door in lingerie and they get real familiar. Yeah, we're going to switch that one. She's getting way too familiar. There's been officers that's gotten in trouble having um, relationships with offenders and ended up with third degree felonies. Most of them, they lose all their pension, which is probably worse than a third degree felony. If you've been working someplace for 25 years, you've built up your nest egg so you can retire. And then all of a sudden they take everything away. It's like, oh my God, now what? So it sounds like there are challenges and frustrations. And I'm wondering, what's the stress level of a probation officer? I would say it's, um, it's very high because you don't really know what it's going to be from day to day. It's hard to really trust too many people because you don't know who's trying to scam you. I've been at football games and an offender has walked up on me. It's like, hey, Mr. Smith. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's here. You know, my wife at the time was like, oh, why didn't you introduce me to, the, to him? I'm like, you don't want to know this guy. Like, hey, this guy has all for aggravated assault. He beat up this person. He shot up this place. It's like, I didn't want him to see me. I don't want them to see me around my kids. None of that stuff. I don't making sure he doesn't follow me home. I don't take the same routes when I go home at times. It's, it's stressful on that level. I mean, we go into dangerous areas, deal with dangerous people and throw dangerous people in jail. And you, you get confronted by gangs and all types of foolishness. So it, it can be stressful in that area. There's a good camaraderie between officers. We look out for each other quite a bit. If I needed anybody for, say, like a gang raid or a drug raid, I had plenty of people that I can call on. Um, the same way with them. If they needed me to assist them with a warrant, all they have to do is like, hey, do you have your badge in your, do you have your vest in your gun? Like, yeah, I got it. All right, cool. This is the person we're about to go see. If you need me, I got you. Same, vice versa. Uh, but yeah, it is a high stress job. Yeah. So you do carry weapons. How likely is a probation officer to use their weapon? It's very, very rare that a probation officer uses their weapon. I mean, people feared probation officers more than they did the police. Because, I mean, when you're on probation, essentially you're in jail, but you're just on the outside. And I'm not going to chase you. I mean, if you run, it's like, okay, run. I'm not going to chase you. I'm just going to write a violation and put a warrant out for you. I mean, when we used to do raids, you'll see two probation officers, but it'll be like 10 police officers there too. So they're going to be the ones that open up the door. So it's met with such overwhelming force that if you pull out a gun, you're crazy. You would be crazy. If you see 10 officers with five with assault rifles and all the rest of them have pistols on their hips, it's already over. Just 
come on, let's go to court, handle this illegal way. I wasn't dealing with any people that I think that murdered anybody. It was just like routine checkup. If anything, the community might be a little bit more dangerous than the people probation. We've already had conversations with their parents and them. It's the community at times that can be a little sketchy that just don't like law enforcement because they just see it as this person threw my uncle in jail. You know, why are they always messing with us? I'm like this guy actually has been terrorizing our neighborhood. He has to pay consequences. You can't just have a lawless society. That's out of control. You wouldn't want to live in that area. And what age level did you deal? Because you mentioned that you're dealing with people's parents. That sounds like you're dealing with young offenders. I've had a couple teenagers that have done things that were to the level of an adult. They were sentenced as adults. So I've had a couple of people that were like 16 to 18. I've had a lot of people that were adults, even a lot older adults. Um, old as my parents that have been doing crime since I was a baby. I felt that those were the hardest ones because I believe when I was doing probation, I was about 27, somewhere around there. So dealing with that was something else. You know, you're dealing with somebody that's been doing crimes before you were alive. They know exactly how to game the system. So sometimes I would lean on my senior officers that's been doing this for decades. They'll assist me with that. And you did mention that between the officers, there was a support system, you had each other's back. And, you know, I'm wondering beyond that, was there counseling available for probation officers? Because, you know, you can have each other's backs, but that doesn't mean you are just digesting whatever happens and never think about it. Um, other than talking to your supervisor, there's not too much counseling. I mean, they had the counseling hotline, um, but no, no counseling. Do you feel that probation officers stop that job because of that mental and emotional stress? Uh, you know, I think one of the main reasons why people would leave the state probation system was because the state probation didn't pay a lot. The training was great. Training was top-notch. So a lot of law enforcement agencies will come by and, and sort of scavenge you. <laughs> Walk through the office and like, hey, have you ever thought about working with the sheriff's officer? Hey, have you ever thought about working with the federal probation? Hey, have you ever thought of working with FBI? Because you already have most of the requirements. You've passed. You've been working here for a number of years. to scavenge you off the top. And, you know, they, they didn't like that because it took so long to train an officer. That's a lot of money. I mean, you have to do... The academy for five years, you have to be on probation for a year, and then you have to work and, and get your caseload down. And, and you do all training. I think we did training maybe once a month on, on something or another, drug training, gang training, physical tactics or defensive tactics. Talking about you're there for four or five years, 10, six, seven years, and somebody comes in and scavenges you. It's like, oh my God, it takes so long. And it's not even a guarantee that we can do a training every year due to budget shortfall. So a lot of people left because of that. Not so much the stress level. Some of them actually wanted to be police officers. It's a different mindset. It's funny. We had a flat tire in one of these cities, and an officer uh, pulled over to assist us. And I was like, I used to work with this guy in Delray. It's a different mindset between the two. And so for you, what was the reason for you why you stopped and changed professions? You know, the drive was a lot for me. Um, it was an hour there and an hour back. 
And then also I got tired, you know, arresting people. I think I had a conversation with one of the prisoners out there. It sort of changed my mindset of how I'm coming about things. Every day, I'm just like, yeah, you do have different situations from day to day, but sometimes it seems like you're working in a circle. It's not really getting anywhere. It's like, yeah, I've seen people progress and I've seen a few people, you know, make it here and there. But if I'd noticed that a lot of these people are on, at least the ones that I think are redeemable, are on for not having money in education, then I need to go into the education field and be that. So I ended up uh, working more in the university system. I was working as a financial aid for like seven years. That was very intrinsic job, if I had to say so myself. Get a chance to help people um, graduate, get to elevate entire families. Um, you might have had a family that nobody's ever had a college degree before. Their base income was, you know, in the 20s. And you help them get an education, graduate. You can see their, them elevate, maybe making now 60 to 70, $80,000. You can see their children dress a little bit better. You see they have a better outcome on things. Children are talking about going to school. Cousins and everybody else is talking about going to school now. So I'm like, okay. That one person making that change changed the outlook for so many people. So I'm like, okay, I like this a lot better, you know, because if I do something probation, it's like, oh, yeah, now he's not screw up. It's like, well, when you do it in education, it's like, wow, look at where that person got. I want to come to school, too. So you'll get friends and family and, and cousins and moms all come to school because they saw the outcome with that person. So I like that when I was able to make a bigger effect than that. Yeah, it sounds like when you're working in probation, you're putting out the fire. But what you do now is so much more positive because you are empowering people. So there might not be a fire. So mm -hmm. that, you know, I can see. And I think we forget sometimes how empowering one person doesn't just stay there because the person has friends and family and lives in a community. So that's a widespread positive effect. And now I'm a financial advisor. So. In that sense, like I said, I was helping people elevate, you know, to greater income. But a lot of times they didn't know how to manage debt. They didn't know how to manage the money that they made. So they're sort of pissing the money off. So it's like, okay, you know, I've been doing financial advising on the college level, helping people get financial aid. Now I've just elevated to another level and now I'm helping people get their lives straight. So instead of dealing with people on a time period of four to eight years, now I'm dealing with people for 10 to 20 years, helping them put pieces in place to give them generational wealth so their kids don't have to start from zero. Because if you make a hundred thousand, but you spend, you know, 99 of it, you don't really have that much. But if they had the conversation with me, we were able to take a look at things, do what's called a fact finder and see what their debt and income is put some pieces in place to help them be able to plan for their child's education. If something were to happen to them and they were still trying to do plans to, to have their kids go to school, have a house, uh, have their mortgage paid off, we put plans in place to help protect their income, plan for retirement. That way their kids don't have to take care of them when they get old. It's a lot of things that we put in place to try to protect people now. I see definitely that is a a big difference, especially in the black community. The probation thing, think about how many people would not have been on probation if their grandparents left the family like a million dollars. 
they might not even have been in that situation because they wouldn't be living in that area to get in trouble. So a lot of things are alleviated by by having finances, having resources, and having a job. While it is the most important piece to your financial plan, is having that income on a regular basis. You definitely don't want to start from zero for each generation. You can't come up and elevate with that, especially with inflation. You can't start from zero every time. That's that's a recipe for disaster. So it's really great that you you can still give back to the community and it's enjoyable to you and you having a much bigger impact. And it's almost like, you know, all the things you did before created this knowledge in you and this experience so that you now really can see what's the biggest effect, where can you be having the most impact? People can read a book and say like, okay, these are the causes and effects. I've seen firsthand men to the neighborhoods, talk to the people, shook the hands and kiss the babies. Yeah. And I thank you very much for giving us insight into what does it look like in probation. And also, I think this is a thought that maybe other people might follow too. How great would it be if more of us would contribute in the way you do? So we're not just putting out fires and punishing people, but we are finding ways of empowering them. Exactly. Resources give you options. You're not forced to having to go here. You're not forced to having to live in a certain area. You're not forced to eat certain types of food. I've lived in impoverished areas before and having those options are great, but it just requires planning and sacrifice. You have to have some level of sacrifice for your children and for your future generations. You have to plan it out. You want your money to last so long that people will still be repeating your name for generations. Well, thank you very much also for these inspiring words. And I wish you that you keep going, you know, being able to have this impact and that you can enjoy that for yourself. If you liked this episode, please tell your friends and family, write a review and give us some stars.